Houston, we have returned, and we may have a problem. Welcome back, as usual, to the Nasty Pasty Podcast. I'm your decidedly ungrandiose host, Senor Andrew Roberts. Back with another pair of horror films from the era where, paradoxically, a lot of things were acceptable, and at the same time, unacceptable. Sort of like a microcosm of cognitive dissonance. Today, we can learn valuable lessons from our films, like never pick up strange blue rocks on your way to spelunking, it's inspirational to type by candlelight in a deep cave, and finally, it's absolutely fine to copy someone else's work wholesale, as long as you tweak it just a little bit with some minimum effort. I'm just a little bit obsessed with the idea of video nasties, films which contain such horrific violence that it can actually make people go out and hurt people themselves. Utter bullshit, of course, but the UK public were tricked into believing such nonsense back in the 80s, due to the scaremongering tactics of several people, including Tory MPs who wanted to cash in on the flavour of the year, the Director of Public Prosecutions who'd probably never seen a horror film since the 1922 version of Nosferatu, the Daily Mail, as populist back then as they still are today, Mary Whitehouse, who'd give even Katie Hopkins and Anne Coulter a run for their money by being constantly offended by everyone and everything, and even a police chief, James Anderton, who actually believed he was doing God's will on Earth. I was born way after all this had long died, so I discovered this whole tobacco on the internet, on almost a fashion that would delight the anti-nasty crowd. I now feel utterly compelled to seek out this material and study them for both pleasure and education. Like, why was there a definitive list of what was considered obscene? Why did the DPP focus on these films exactly? Why wasn't XYZ included when they're just as bad? This is what I try to answer as I go through films of the same era that were not considered nasty, but they really should have been, going by the official examples anyway. This week, we're ditching the cadavers of last week, putting that voodoo contamination to bed for now, and looking upon higher things. We're examining some good old-fashioned rip-offs again, though, this week, specifically two Italian takes on the Alien franchise. Alien Terror, sometimes released as Alien 2 on Earth, or Strangers, and Shocking Dark, which is released sometimes as Terminator 2, Contaminator, Alienators, and Aliens 2. Now, almost every casual horror or science fiction fan is aware of the Alien franchise. It was started in 1979 with Ridley Scott's Alien, a rather dark film noir-style science fiction film in which the crew find themselves under attack from a hostile alien creature known as a xenomorph after landing on a derelict planet. It spawned three sequels, 1986's Aliens, directed by James Cameron, Alien 3 in 1992 from David Fincher, and finally Alien Resurrection in 1997 from Jean-Pierre Jeunet. In recent times, the franchise has been expanded with two prequels, 2012's Prometheus and 2017's Alien Covenant, both directed by the original director Ridley Scott. The franchise is also extended to comics, books, spin-offs like the Alien vs. Predator series, and even video games like Alien Trilogy, Alien Resurrection, Aliens Colonial Marines, and most recently Alien Isolation, which was actually confirmed to be canon by 20th Century Fox, who distributed the original films. The xenomorph creature, a large Freudian nightmare with bug-like appendages and a tough carapace, armed with an extendable jaw, a razor tail and acidic blood, and that gestates by using lesser facehuggers to implant embryos in human victims, has haunted popular culture for many years now. 
Well, it has had a few variations over the years. The insect-like caste mentality and the colony structure has remained the same and has received very little canon-breaking differences. You'd think that in today's world, with copyright laws being as stringent as they are, that someone would have to have a death wish to rip off such a well-known franchise. But never fear, though, for the Italians had already done it, multiple times. Shortly after both Alien and Aliens, the Italians made their own take on the idea of a creature that lays some dangerous form of egg and uses humans as incubators or just victims for their young. One of these in particular actually became a video nasty itself, Luigi Cozzi's 1980 movie Contamination, which featured an alien creature beneath a coffee plantation in Colombia laying dangerously corrosive eggs to be shipped out all over the world in order to cause havoc. It was rather blatant in ripping off its source material, but it was gorily entertaining nonetheless, and it found itself promptly seized for this explicitness. So without further ado, let's get on to another of the same ilk, starting with 1980's Alien Terror. As a news station eagerly awaits a space capsule to re-enter Earth's atmosphere to run a news story of its success, a young lady called Thelma and her boyfriend Roy rush to the same station for an interview about cave exploring. It's cut short when Thelma appears to have a major headache, revealed by her afterwards to have been a vision, as she believes herself telepathic. After she's recovered, Roy drives her to a nearby dock to meet with her therapist Peter, but he's rather unhelpful to her plight. Meanwhile, a child finds a blue stone on the shore and hands it to his mother. Thelma and Roy then meet with their spelunking friends at a bowling alley. Bert, Phil, Maureen, Cliff, Bill and Jill. And then they head out to a shop to gather supplies for their latest cave drop. 
At the beach nearby, Thelma notices a little girl run off somewhere and is strangely concerned by this, shouting at her, No. Shortly afterwards, the girl finds a strange pulsating blue rock and her mother soon finds her with her face horrendously deformed. On their way to the cave, the radio in the group's car indicates that there was no trace of the astronauts when the space capsule finally landed. At a gas station, the group stop to get changed into their cave gear, while Bert finds one of the strange blue rocks and pockets it. The group descend into their chosen cave and successfully set up camp in the depths. When exploring a set of tunnels, Jill notices the rock that Bert found is pulsating in Thelma's backpack. Extracting it for a closer look, something bursts out of the rock and attacks Jill's face. Running for help, Thelma warns the others and Phil goes on ahead to find Jill. He does so inside a deep ditch, and she seems relatively unharmed, leading the rest of the group to prep her unconscious body to return to the surface. Once she's hoisted out of the ditch, the others make their attempt to get out themselves, only for a strange life form to burst from Jill's face, diving at Phil's neck and biting through it, severing his head completely. The group flee from this and try to formulate a way out, only for Bert to realise that he's left his bag of equipment behind. He successfully retrieves it, and the group then split up to look for an alternative route to the surface. Thelma and Roy discuss the astronauts' disappearance, assuming that the strange rocks are related to the space capsule, whilst Maureen and Bert are distraught when a rat attacks them and causes their equipment to break. Deciding to continue on, Maureen encounters a dead end, only to discover to her horror that the rocks around her seem to be breathing. Bert runs to her screams and discovers that she's surrounded by aliens who are the same colour as the cave walls. He tries to save her, but both are devoured by the creatures. While searching for the missing pair, Roy sprains his ankle, halting their progress, so Cliff offers to scout ahead while Roy rests. He is then killed by one of the aliens when his radio cuts out, and Thelma's attempts to communicate with him telepathically fail. The rest of the group try to locate Cliff's body, and find him strangely unharmed. Thelma, however, sees this as a deception and focuses her telepathy on the imposter, suddenly causing its head to burst open and revealing the tentacles of an alien, which attacks and then kills Bill. Roy and Thelma use the opportunity to escape the caves and arrive on the surface, and then get back in the car and drive away. They soon come across an empty police car before returning to the gas station from earlier, only to find that empty as well. Deciding to go further into the city, which also appears woefully short of life, they head to the bowling alley to find help, which is of course empty as well. Roy goes off into the back and suddenly yells for help, only for Thelma to discover him transformed into an alien himself. She runs, pursued by multiple aliens, into the streets crying for help, until she finally falls down in despair at the lack of life around her. Hey, Bert! Bert! Everybody's getting ready to go to sleep, come on! You just have to put up a tent, what's the big deal? Do I have to do it? Come on, I'm writing. All right. How come you always type by candlelight? Because the light it gives is sweet and romantic. Mm. And I'm inspired by it. And there's another advantage, too. What's that? It's also convenient. Convenient? Because everything I write is such garbage. And it burns in an instant. Good system, huh? Yes, I wish I knew. Call it paranoia, but 
I feel so alone. You think they're monsters inside all of us? Velma, you can't ruin every second of the day like this. If you go on, honey, something's going to snap pretty soon. End up in the nut house. Come here, you. Released pretty much on the tailcoat of Ridley Scott's original, along with Cotzi's Contamination, Ciro Ippolito's Alien Terror really doesn't hide its influences or its intentions, with the original title actually being Alien 2 on Earth. Seemingly marketed in Italy as a direct sequel to Scott's film, it's hard to imagine what viewers must have thought when they genuinely believed it was a sequel to the well-crafted, tense sci-fi terror that was Alien. Director Ciro Ippolito was inspired to make the film after attending a screening of Alien at the Adriano Cinema in Rome with the editor Carlo Broglio. On their way out, they spotted a poster for Zombie 2, or Zombie Flesh Eaters, which was being marketed as a sequel to Romero's Dawn of the Dead in Italy. Ippolito then thought of conceiving a film that would unofficially be a sequel to Ridley Scott's film, and set to work right away after getting a cast and crew together. After all this was set up, the project initially hired writer Biagio Proietti to direct, but after some disagreements during the first week of shooting, he ultimately left the production. Ippolito then requested Mario Bava if he could undertake the project, but Bava was busy on the set of Dario Argento's Inferno at the time. Ippolito was then forced to take the director's helm himself, with little to no experience of such responsibilities, case in point being that he spent a lot of the film's initial budget on a new car for himself. Rather than completely eclipse the production, however, Bava suggested some tactics to exploit the low budget and gave some valuable advice to the inexperienced Ippolito. Its parallels to Alien are obvious. The pulsating blue rocks are in place of the facehugger eggs that we've come to recognise. The alien behaviour of attacking the face and implanting an embryo of some kind into the host is also virtually unchanged from the xenomorph. The spelunking outfits are sort of a poor man's version of the spacesuits of the Nostromo crew, and the dark caves substitute for the cold, sharp, rocky terrain of the LV-426 planet from the Alien franchise. The moment of Maureen and Bert's deaths mirror that of Ripley's final encounter with the Xenomorph, where she doesn't realise that the wall near her is in fact the alien camouflaged against the colours of the ship. And similarly, the moment where Maureen and Bert are attacked by the rat and have their equipment destroyed is rather similar to when Ripley, Parker and Brett are searching for the alien with the motion tracker and end up encountering a cat instead. Similarly, Clef's death plays out similar to the death of Captain Dallas, with Thelma desperately trying to communicate, albeit telepathically, that Cliff is in danger. Even the subsequent reveal that Cliff's imposter is an alien, it has nods to the scene of Ash being revealed as a hostile android. While the spirit of the film is definitely there, and the eagerness to cherry-pick some of the successful elements is there also, it's glaringly obvious too how certain things are just missing, almost all of them as a result of the infinitely smaller budget. There simply wasn't enough money to set this film in space, so appropriately, the film was written to be set on Earth instead. In a move similar to Norman J. Warren's in Seminoid, the crew also chose caves to shoot the majority of the film in, making the characters cave explorers as part of the plot. This is actually rather successful too. The film's location of the Castellana Caves in Apulia, Italy is a real boon to the film's claustrophobic effect. 
especially combined with the rather low-key moody soundtrack. With the earthy colours and sometimes alien-looking formations of the rocks, it does lend the film a certain unusual vibe, not unlike that which Neil Marshall would utilise in The Descent many years later, which is tonally very similar with a claustrophobic focus on people being stalked by creatures in caves. Gone too, though, is the emphasis on tension between the characters, or any serious character development. Ridley Scott's original, of course, had multiple instances of characters clashing, such as Ripley disagreeing with Dallas about letting him on the ship, the subsequent animosity that Lambert holds towards her, or the nuisance that Parker and Brett make of themselves, with Dallas relating to their pay. There's no such tension, though, in the characters of Alien Terror, with only a minor subplot about Thelma's telepathy, which is a little too ham-fisted and overwrought to be that interesting. It's first established as a mere vision that she has, ending up in a headache, which is fine, although it would have been crap tons more effective if we actually saw what she saw. As it happens, it's rather handled off-handedly, rather than focused on directly. So, the only moment where it actually seems to mean something is when she speaks to Dan and mentions that she feels an intense loneliness, something which actually does come true in the film's climax, where she's running through the empty city streets calling for help. She also inquires if there are monsters inside all of us, hearkening to the later alien's infection of her comrades' bodies. In this small scene, then, the premonition aspect is rather interesting, as her premonitions all do prove to be correct, and it's subtle enough to get away with. But, unfortunately, this doesn't last long, and Thelma inexplicably develops carry levels of psychic ability over the last half an hour of the film, such as being able to telepathically warn Cliff of an impending alien attack, or using psychokinesis to burst open the imposter Cliff's head, revealing the tentacles underneath. It just descends it to a rather silly level of antics that just makes you roll your eyes more than anything else. But one of the film's strengths, however, is the gore and special effects. While Ridley Scott kept his creature obscured for the majority of his film, Ippolito seemingly needed to do that due to the lack of money to realise a fully functioning alien creature. So on Barva's suggestions, the special effects team used an abundance of tripe to fashion the special effects by adding mechanisms inside to give the illusion of movement. The only glimpses we get of the creatures are these deep red tentacles, which quickly envelop and kill its victims in an actually brutal fashion. The other effect, though, which is rather memorable, is the point of view of the aliens, which is achieved by covering the outer side of the lens with tripe and then fitting that with medical pumps to realistically expand it as though it were a living creature. It is surprisingly effective, especially as we don't get to see what the creatures look like in full, but we get enough visual peaks of them to let our imagination do the rest. The aliens in the film in general, though, are sometimes a little confused in their functions. When we first see them burst from the blue rocks, it's assumed that they implant themselves in a human body and erupt shortly afterwards, similar to the xenomorph's facehugger and the chestburster setup. I mean, the little girl's and Jill's face certainly indicate this as we get a sort of faceburster-style creature. However, later it becomes clear that the alien can actually gestate inside and somehow retain the human form to get around if they wish, only exposing the tentacles when prey get close, as in the case of both Roy and in Cliff. In another example, it seems that the alien's natural form has a flesh-coloured tone, as their skin, as Maureen and Bert are killed by several aliens who are masquerading as part of the cave walls, clearly breathing as they're next to their victims. 
Again, not too much is revealed on screen about their appearance other than the signature red tentacles, which do inflict a veritable array of slaughter during their appearances. Our faceburster gets to gnaw through someone's neck, enough to send the head detaching off while still wearing the helmet, while Maureen and Burke get completely pulverised by the tentacles, losing eyes and stuff in the process. While it does take a bit of time to get to these scenes, they are impressive enough to be quite a satisfactory reward. Other things in the film that managed to garner this viewer's appreciation, at least, is the fact that the actors were clearly diving into a cave with all the right equipment, and that the film does actually show in the climax a devoid-of-life city, something which would have been really hard to achieve even for high-budget films in that era of filmmaking. Today, of course, you can just CGI everything out, but there wouldn't have been that option back then, which just makes it all the more impressive. Presumably due to being aware of Fulci's Zombie 2, the film also ends with quite a downbeat message that insinuates that the aliens have in fact spread all over the world, spouting Ora pua colpire ancete, which translates to Now it can hit you too, or quite roughly, you might be next. Thelma was played by British actress Belinda Maine, and I kept thinking, where have I seen her before? It bugged me throughout the whole film as I knew I'd seen her somewhere, and sure enough, it was from Don't Open Till Christmas, where she played main girl Kate. She'd also appeared in stuff, though, like Night Kill and Krull. Mark Bodan, who played uh, Thelma's boyfriend Roy, he's recognisable from Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus as the unfortunate Danny. Benedetta Fantoli, who played Maureen, she cropped up again in the Atlantis Interceptors, whilst Peter Shepard, who played the psychiatrist Peter, had been in The Bloodstained Butterfly, and later the slasher film Mind Ripper, which he also produced. In fact, Shepard was a producer on a few things, like the video nasty Madhouse, he was an assistant director on stuff like Pasolini's Canterbury Tales, and also the Jaws rip-off Tentacles. Michele Soavi played Bert, and Soavi is quite recognisable as having his hand in a lot of pies. He's been an assistant director on Absurd and Tenebrae, both nasties, as well as 2020 Texas Gladiators, Endgame, A Blade in the Dark, Demons, Phenomena, Blast Fighter and Opera. And he's also a director himself, helming Stage Fright, The Sect, The Church and Cemetery Man. During these formative years of his career, he has been in a crap ton of Italian films, in small roles such as Absurd, The New York Ripper, Tenebrae, Endgame, Atlantis Interceptors, Blast Fighter, Phenomena, Demons, Stage Fright, Opera, The Church, Luigi Cozzi's version of The Black Cat, The Sect, and also Cemetery Man. He's quite the cult star, really, so people are bound to notice Michele in all of these movies. Director Ciro Ippolito didn't really dig further into horror and has a relatively small filmography of films that seem to be quite popular in Italy, but they were not particularly well known outside of the country. He did actually appear in Alien Terror as well, as one of the TV studio directors in the opening, and he had an uncredited role in Flavia the Heretic too, but I can't, couldn't actually find which character he played. He also created the special effects on Alien Terror himself, on the advice of Mario Bava. He was assisted on the effects, though, by makeup artist Lamberto Marini, who'd worked on Death Laid an Egg and The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire. Producer Angiolo Stella's only other credit of note is Weekend at Bernie's 2, whilst cinematographer Silvio Fraschetti worked on things like The Beast in Space and White Fang and the Gold Diggers. Editor Carlo Brogio also worked on The Beast in Space, but the most prolific of the crew was the mysterious composer Oliver Onions. 
It actually turns out that this was a pseudonym for brothers Maurizio and Guido De Angelis, who've done the music for a wealth of well-known Italian genre titles like Torso, The Violent Professionals, The Mondo Film, This Violent World, uh, The Big Racket, The House by the Edge of the Lake, Killer Fish, Iron Master, 2019 After the Fall of New York, A Blade of the Dark, and Atlantis Interceptors. Now, the film was released in April of 1980 under its original title, Alien 2 Solitaire, and it's a bit in the dark about how it performed, really. It was released in most of the other European countries as well, like Spain and Germany, and it even played in Asia in places like Hong Kong. But it did actually skip the US and UK cinemas, however, and was simply released on VHS instead. Interestingly, 20th Century Fox, who distributed the original Alien film, did become aware of Ippolito's movie, and they were considering filing a lawsuit against him. They chose not to pursue it, however, as a previous British lawsuit against their own film from a book publisher dropped the case as the term Alien was not considered a trademarkable term. Since Ippolito's film bore actual little resemblance to Scott's film and only merely used Alien in the title, 20th Century Fox chose to forget it. But ironically, Ippolito himself would file a lawsuit against the producers of Neil Marshall for $100,000. Now, Marshall, of course, had directed the 2005 horror The Descent, and Ippolito cited that the ideal it was stolen from his film. It was thrown out rather quickly, though, and it became clear that the films were just merely set in similar terrain. They had completely different plots. The film had a VHS release in the UK under the title Alien Terror, and it was released by VTC in September of 1982. Now, this is rather exciting for multiple reasons. One of these was that the nasty scare was in full force at the time. Two was that the VTC had already got into trouble for releasing multiple nasty titles, like The Witch Who Came From The Sea, Zombie Holocaust, uh, Possession, Delirium, and Nightmare City, just to name a few. But thirdly, and most interestingly, Alien Terror was actually distributed a second time by VTC on a double-bill VHS along with Nightmare City, which was one of the nasties listed on the Section 3 list. So this means that Alien Terror was technically seized by default because it was actually physically sharing the same tape as Nightmare City. I'm not sure if the standalone release would have been seized, but it's rather likely considering it was from the same people who were being closely watched by the DPP. And the fact, actually, is that the ad copy on it hyperbolizes the violence. In one statement, it says, They are eaten alive one by one in horribly explicit sequences of screaming terror, not for the weak stomachs or hearts, as various bits and pieces of heads, bodies and gore explode across the screen in vivid colour. This sort of boastful, lurid marketing tactic was exactly what was being frowned upon by the police during the raids, so it's extremely easy to imagine this one being picked up, especially as it would have to because of its connection with Nightmare City. Considering how most titles of this era ended up, Alien Terror actually ended up being quite lucky, and that it was actually passed uncut on VHS in 1986, just a few years after the nasty scandal. But it did soon go out of print, however, and it became quite a rare find for many years. But in recent times, 88 Films have remastered it for DVD and Blu-ray, allowing us to witness the carnage all over again. So, that was Alien Terror. Our next film is Bruno Mattai's Shocking Dark. So let's get straight into the good stuff.
The city of Venice in the future, due to the waters becoming toxic and ruining the buildings, has become off-limits with most people evacuated due to the danger. A control team receive a communication from a team in Venice, including a man called Raffleson, calling for help due to some unknown assailants. After they've sent their SOS, the team are killed by both strange creatures and one of their own crazy crew members called Drake. A team is assembled of scientist Sarah, agent for the Tubular Corporation, Sam Fuller, Megaforce Commander Bond and Lieutenant Franzini, and their grunts including Tough Chick Costa, uh, Price, Kowalski and also Kane. The mission begins and the group enter Venice through underground tunnels, only for their advance to be halted by someone firing at them, which turns out to be the Berserk Drake. When he's caught, he rambles that they're all going to die and they know you're coming before emitting a deafening scream and kidnapping Price. The team split up and look around for him, with Costa and Kane happening upon a cluster of bodies wrapped in a sticky web-like substance. There they find Price, who implores them to kill him just before a mutated hand shoots out from the bodies and tries to strangle Costa. As Kane shoots the thing off her, Franzini is suddenly grabbed by a large mutant creature before his companion shoots it away. When Sarah detects that multiple lifeforms are approaching their position, the team retreat to safety and try to advance through a different area of the complex, only to encounter a young girl called Samantha, Raffleson's daughter, who runs from them. Sarah takes her under her care, and the group rest in a lab, where Fuller surmises that the team based here were researching genetic mutations. When Kowalski and Costa are checking the perimeter, they're both attacked and killed by the mutant monsters. Fuller finds a computer that describes the creatures in further detail, the result of an airborne enzyme that is inhaled by humans, and then it alters their genetic code and transforms them into the monsters roaming around. Just as Sarah relays that they have to reach the Tubular Corporation's plant, the power goes out. Franzini is sent to join Kane to keep watch on the perimeter, where they detect multiple incoming lifeforms on their tracker devices. Backing up with the signal getting ever closer, they fail to realise that the signal is actually coming from behind them, and Kane is then killed by the multiple mutants. They retreat and use an elevator to travel to the Tubular Corporation's plant, much to the chagrin of Fuller, who's also hiding a suspicious wound. Reaching the plant, Sarah takes Samantha and the pair go to sleep while Franzini treats Bond's wounds, only to soon discover that a mutant is in the room with them which attacks them. Fuller secretly shuts off the camera feed to prevent Franzini and Bond from helping them, but Sarah triggers a fire alarm allowing them to rescue her and Samantha. The group presses ahead, finding a control centre where Sarah accuses Fuller of covering up for Tubular, who have arms dealers as their shareholders. Samantha then finds a video which reveals that it was in fact the Tubular Corporation who intentionally polluted Venice in a bid to sell most of the properties and repurchase them at a drastically reduced price. Fuller reveals that Tubular constructs the best weapons ever before Samantha exposes his wound, which shows exposed wires. He attacks the group, killing Franzini and injuring Bond, and starts a destruction sequence in the plant, causing Sarah and Samantha to flee. Obtaining a gun, Sarah runs whilst trying to keep Fuller at bay, and she manages to fry him by shooting a power outlet near him, only to lose Samantha when she falls down a duct. As Sarah laments when some of the mutants attack her, she's suddenly grabbed from behind by Fuller, who tries to strangle her. She manages to fight him off with a fire extinguisher and heads back to find Samantha, who's entangled in the creature's webbing. Struggling to get her out, Sarah fails to notice a mutant behind her, but is suddenly saved by Bold, who shoots the creature only to get killed himself. Sarah and Samantha continue to try and find a way out as the self-destruct sequence goes past the point of no return. 
Seemingly reaching a dead end, Sarah assumes that the pair will die, until a screen pops up and reveals that they're in fact inside a time-travelling pod. As the pair disappear in time, the plant and the underground tunnels explode as the self-destruct activates. Sarah and Samantha then wake up in the past, where Venice is intact, unpolluted, and populated. Just as they think they're safe, Fuller suddenly arrives on the scene inexplicably and pursues them in the streets. As he corners them, Sarah activates her time-travelling remote and throws it at him, which activates and sends him away to a time unknown, leaving Sarah and Samantha safe at last. Well, what can I say about this one? Anyone who's seen this film will kind of know already about the main issue with Shocking Dark. A cursory mention of its alternative titles may provide a hint. Its original title was Terminator 2, but it has others like Alienators, Contaminator, and... (sighs) Aliens 2. It's not so much that it's an issue with its entertainment value, but the very nature of the problem basically puts a harsh, strict limit on the cinematic and artistic merits that the film could have offered. People often say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and if that is the case, then Bruno Mattai is basically giving James Cameron the world's most delicate rusty trombone whilst astride a bed of pure silk and peacock down. Let's make no bones about it. Shocking Dark is pretty much a scene-by-scene remake of James Cameron's 1986 movie Aliens, with the final tenth of the movie being a very condensed ode to his other famous film, The Terminator. It's not even the slightest bit subtle as to its source material. Rather than set the film in outer space, the futuristic ruined city of Venice is chosen, but all the elements are the same as aliens. Monstrous creatures that have wiped out a scientific facility, a civilian lady is brought in to investigate the place with a bunch of marines and a company representative. When there, they encounter an orphaned girl who's managed to survive the monster's attacks, and one by one the group is dwindled down to our final girl and her charge, who have to face off against a much stronger adversary than they've previously encountered. 
The facility blows up and the pair are safe at last. With the exception of the final five to ten minutes, the whole story is essentially a cut and paste job. Costa and Kane are basically playing the roles of Vasquez and Drakes from Aliens. Sarah is playing the role of Ripley. Fuller is one part Bishop and one part Burke from Aliens. And then strangely, one part Arnie from The Terminator. When Price is kidnapped, they use a tracking device similar to the motion detector from Aliens. And Price is then found in exactly the same circumstances as the female colonist from Aliens who begs for her life to be ended. When Franzini is saved from one of the creatures, Sarah turns up and pretty much recites the same dialogue of the scene in Aliens when Ripley and the gang are holed up in one room as multiple aliens are advancing towards them through the roof. It even has the same vibrant red light shining over the cast. Sarah detecting one life form and then it turning out to be Samantha is exactly the same scene as when Ripley and the team encounter Newt for the first time. The scene subsequently in the lab is exactly the same as when Spunkmeyer checks in on Bishop when he's examining a facehugger. Even the line is the same. Nice looking specimen you've got there. Kowalski and Costa are killed in a similar manner to how Frost and Dietrich are killed in Aliens during the first attack. The power goes out with Ripley, sorry, I mean Sarah, saying so whilst Captain Bond says, What do you mean they cut the lights? It's set in the same exact style as Hicks. Franzini and Kane muse about the signals around them in the same way as Vasquez and Hicks, and the subsequent scene is another rendition of the infamous aliens crawling through the ceiling space moment. Sarah and Samantha going to sleep and then waking up to a mutant in the room, pretty much word for word what happens to Ripley and Newt in Aliens, some of the shots are even the same. The self-destruct sequence is activated a la Aliens, and Fuller, now revealed as a Terminator in all but name, takes the place basically of the alien queen in the climax of Aliens. Even the shot of her yelling, you bastard, is almost spiritually get away from her, you bitch, from Aliens. The scene where Newt falls under the floor and is then kidnapped by Aliens is recreated with Sarah and Samantha. As you can see, every single sequence in Shocking Dark is an almost shot-for-shot, line-for-line recreation of everything that we've seen in Aliens already. When Fuller is revealed to be a murderous cyborg, it then switches focus and rips heavily on Terminator, such as Fuller crushing a child's toy Arnie style, the thing about time travel being introduced, and a chase sequence where Sarah basically turns from Ripley into Sarah Connor. This zealous approach to recreating entire scenes without much thought, it wouldn't be that bad if they actually tweaked them to make sense in relation to the plot, but... The sheer dedication of mirroring the scenes completely actually makes little to no sense in certain bits. For example, the scene of Fuller examining something is a copy of when Bishop is doing a sort of mini-autopsy on the facehugger creature. Fuller later finds everything he needs to know from the computer, so he cannot be examining anything in this fashion, especially when Franzini refers to it as a specimen. A specimen of what? The only thing outside of the mutants themselves is the strange webbing that they coat their victims in, which also, for the matter, makes no sense. Every time we see the mutants, they cut, they kill nigh instantly, and unlike the xenomorphs, they've got no reason to take prisoners. There's also the scene of the motion tracker in the room, mimicking when the xenomorphs sneakily get into the room via the ceiling. Franzini clearly states that there's stuff in the room, and there is, but they're facing the wrong direction. I mean, this isn't entirely stupid, as the motion tracker may just detect nearby life forms, but there's a few times when the characters make mention of specific directions of where life forms are, which indicates that's how the device works. The fact that the scene had to work in the same exact fashion as the scene in Aliens, though, overrode the film's own logic. This is compounded even further with the scene of Sarah finding Samantha's pendant that she gives to her. 
There's literally no way her motion or life form tracker would detect that in any way. The only reason it does so in this film is to mimic the scene where Ripley despairs that she's been tracking Newt's watch the whole time. But that makes perfect sense in Cameron's film, as it's been fully established beforehand that that's what the watch does. And you have the same exact problem when Costa and Kane bump into Price encased in webbing. He begs them to kill him, when there's absolutely no reason to do so. I mean, Samantha's perfectly unharmed later when in the same situation, and there's no chestburster about to break out of Price's body. It's just simply done to emulate the original scene, and not much else. With this in mind, the film's uniqueness and creativity is woefully minimal. Almost nothing. I mean, granted, Matai weaves a different context around the events, and makes a little bit of effort to change details like mutants instead of aliens, but it's just too difficult to appreciate anything that the film does, as it's just so closely clinging to the success of James Cameron's film. While it does not mean that the film is going to be contributing anything amazing to the lexicon of filmmaking, it does have to be said that there is an almost hypnotic entertainment value to be had. I was quite literally gobsmacked at the brazen wholesale copying from Aliens that I actually felt compelled to watch further to see just how far it went. The rather dumb acting by all involved, and the cheesiness of proceedings considering the actors know exactly what they're ripping off, it makes it akin to a somewhat hilarious childish parody of Aliens that's been adapted for the school play, with you know kids knowing the source material and trying not to smile as they recreate their favourite scenes. The only exception to this is the presence of Goretta Goretta, who's clearly having fun with her tough Vasquez impression, and she is rather enjoyable to see as she pushes out lines like, Alright you bunch of pussies, I'm back and I'm kicking ass. With the introduction of time travel by the end of it, it does make one think of the film as maybe the result of Matai going back in time, having watched Aliens on repeat, and then making his own version in an alternative timeline where Cameron wasn't born. Except, of course, he was, and it got accidentally released in our own timeline. There's a few violent bits in it, like the monster attacks and some gunfights, but the gore quotient is pitifully in short supply. Most of our heroes end up being thrown off balconies or killed off-screen before being cocooned in the webbing. The effects of Fuller, as he's becoming damaged, revealing his cybernetic parts underneath, is probably the closest we get to actual special effects. The mutants themselves are rather basic, but they're fun enough to giggle at, I guess. They're certainly not that threatening, and it is a lot lighter in tone than Cameron's film, simply because it's just so hard to take this film in any way serious. The writing's quite wooden and shallow, when it's not paraphrasing the lines from Alien, that is, and the plot of Venice's seaweed killing the oxygen in the water, thereby making it stagnant, resulting in a post-apocalyptic evacuation and destruction, is a little flimsy, just to say the least. Like I said, it's certainly not going to win any awards. Ever but it's enjoyable in a kind of breaking-all-the-rules kind of way. I mean, it's hilariously cheap, ineptly put together, completely a rip-off of better films, but it just has a charm about it. It's simply too funny to dismiss, too outrageous to be boring, and it's too brazen to be forgotten about. I imagine that with a group of friends and a shed load of alcohol, this film could really be appreciated in full, especially if those friends happen to be fans of Aliens. The guy who sort of graces the poster of the film, Arnold Schwarzenegger style, is Christopher Ahrens, who plays Fuller. Now, unsurprisingly, he didn't do much outside of this, except for minor roles in Ra- Raiders of the Magic Ivory and Beyond Justice. And so, too, was the fate of Haven Tyler, who played Ripley... Sorry, I mean Sarah. She literally appeared in nothing else, and has since become an accounts director for a business in Boston, Massachusetts. 
Goretta Goretta, who played Costa, is probably the more recognisable person in the cast, having been previously in 2020 Texas Gladiators, Murder Rock, uh, Rats Night of Terror and Demons previously. Fausto Lombardi, who played Franzini, we've seen before in Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 and Terror Express, but he'd also been around in Rats Night of Terror and Don't Look in the Attic as well. As far as everyone else goes, though, this was pretty much their only credit, and probably for good reason. The only other memorable aspect that any of the other cast exhibits is that who plays Samantha, who's played by Dominika Coulson, who is noticeably not dubbed, and she speaks phonetic English, presumably because she's a native Italian speaker. It's only noticeable because she actually sounds rather authentic as an Italian person who's speaking English, but that's because she literally is. But... Unfortunately, it granted her no further work in the industry, however. And I didn't see them personally, myself, even though I got quite a keen eye for this sort of thing, but apparently Massimo Varney and James Sampson, both of whom were mentioned quite heavily in the Zombie Flesh Eaters episodes yesterday, played nameless soldiers in the film too. Director and editor Bruno Mattai, we've mentioned before as a bit of an entertaining rip-off merchant, and this film kind of solidifies this image of him. Claudio Fragasso, who's the writer, has also been mentioned before on the Zombie Flesh Eaters sequel episode. Most people, of course, know him as the director of Troll 2. But in fact, most of the crew on this has actually been encountered before. There's producer Franco Gordenzi, who's done most of Matei's films. Uh, the composer, Carlo Maria Cordio, of Absurd and Pieces fame. Uh, cinematographer, Riccardo Grassetti, from Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. And finally, the special effects guys, Franco Di Girolamo, Francesco and Gaetano Polici, who'd been mentioned on the last few episodes too. The only newcomer of note, though, who also worked on the special effects was Tanya McComas, who had her debut role on this film. She actually went on to do quite a variety of things, like working on the TV series Freddy's Nightmares, a Cliffhanger, Last Action Hero, True Lies... High School High, Home Alone 3, Halloween H2O, Goldmember, American Beauty, Superman Returns, and J. Edgar. She's actually rather successful then, really. Though, I would have really loved to have been her when working on the set of True Lies, knowing that your first role had actually been in a massive rip-off of the director's work. There's so many reasons why this wouldn't have been flagged up by the DPP, though. Mainly that it was released in 1989, far too late to incur anyone's wrath. But not only that, apart from a local release in Italy, and an extended cut, yes, I realise how silly that sounds, on VHS in Japan, the film has actually languished without a release all over the world. This is most likely due to the film's original title being Terminator 2, which would have caused a huge copyright and licensing issue in America and throughout most of Europe. The fact that it was also released as Aliens 2 in certain territories, when it was actually a blatant copy of Cameron's original, would have also just caused a lorry load of legal issues. It has remained unavailable due to these issues until 2018, when Severin Films released the film on Blu-ray in a worldwide debut release. The UK has yet to have an official release though, so maybe it'll happen one day, possibly?
So that was Shocking Dark, and it's the end of this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed visiting these retreads of the famous Alien franchise as much as I did. Something like Shocking Dark, though, at least proves that you don't have to be original, but for heaven's sake, just don't be boring. It's the cardinal sin of filmmaking. Next week, we're sticking with an alien theme, but we're ditching the specifics of the Xenomorph riff-offs. Next week is just plain extraterrestrials week, so we're covering two horrors that feature interstellar monsters who are wreaking havoc on us humans. They are 1980's Without Warning and 1983's The Deadly Spawn. I'm really looking forward to next week's films myself, as I've not seen either of them, but I frequently saw the cover of Deadly Spawn on VHS as a child, and it freaked me the hell out. So it'll be interesting to see what I could have awaited me had I actually picked it up. Until then, thanks as ever for tuning into Nasty Pasty, and do get in touch if you enjoyed these films on either Twitter or Facebook. I'm always down for conversations about the films that we're covering. Until next week, however, stay nasty and speak to you all soon. Toodle peep! (laughs) 